Good evening. You can be turning in your Bibles to Hosea, the book of Hosea. That's in the Old Testament, just after the book of Daniel. If you've been here regularly on Sunday nights, you can look just after the worn pages in the Old Testament in Daniel and, uh, and find Hosea. There's something that uh, some folks say that at this point in our studies kind of makes me chuckle. And that is that they'll look at the Bible and they'll say, well, you serve two different gods. There's two gods presented in the Bible. The one of the Old Testament, who's a, a harsh God, a terrible God, a very, very judgmental and condemning God. And then there's the God of the New Testament. And He's loving. He's forgiving. He's kind. He's compassionate. And you see, you serve two different gods. And you say, God can't change, but He has. And so I kind of chuckle at that because it becomes very apparent as you read through the Old Testament and study the writings there, and especially as you study the prophets, that God indeed in the Old Testament is a God of love and compassion and of forgiveness because you see in the prophets all the things that His people did to Him and all the things He was willing to forgive. All the things that they did and yet He was willing to receive them back. As his people once again. And so, although in the Old Testament, perhaps there is more of the bloodshed recorded there because of his judgment, and that also for our instruction, we do also see that character of God that's very compassionate. The same as the New Testament. And again, He promises in the New Testament even still that there is judgment coming and that it will not be pleasant for those who have not come back to Him. And so we see in the Old and New Testaments a very equal picture. The same God. Just and righteous. Compassionate and forgiving. A God who loves us. A God who has always loved His creation. Tonight we're opening to the book of Hosea. Hosea prophesied during the time of Isaiah and Micah. But while those two prophesied in Judah, Hosea prophesied to Israel shortly before God would allow them to be taken by the Assyrians. Remember, we have this divided kingdom now. And so we've, we've taken a step back in time from Daniel now we're back to the divided kingdom, uh, and, and while Hosea is prophesying to, the Israel, uh, to Israel, Isaiah and Micah are prophesying in Judah. So Hosea has a difficult job. He is to give a message to the people who would be taken, to the people who shortly from now would not be shown mercy because they had refused to return to God. In the first three chapters of Hosea, they present an image of God's relationship to His people and it's paralleled by a real life example. And that's the life of Hosea and his wife Gomer. Those first three chapters are rich with application and we'll see that tonight. But I want to start just by looking at Hosea's relationship with his wife and how it's directly applied to God's relationship with Israel and Judah. Look at Hosea 1 verse 2. 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the, Lord, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so the very first order of business for Hosea, when the Lord first spoke to him, he hears, Go and marry a woman who is unfaithful, who's promiscuous, who won't be faithful to you. Your children won't always be yours. But I want you to go and marry her anyway. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would particularly like this ministry. Uh, That does not sound like a pleasant thing to go through. And it wasn't. But that's what he was to do. And there were three children who proceeded from Gomer. In verse 4, we note that Jezreel is the first. And that is an interesting word. It means God scatters or sows. You understand scattering has to do with the scattering of that kingdom of Israel. That they would be taken into captivity and never would they return. But in the second part of that meaning, God sows, comes The idea of putting something in the soil and receiving the fruit of it. And that would happen to the people as well after their time of captivity, that is of Judah's captivity, they would return. God would plant them again. Verse 6, we have the second child, Lo-Rahama. And that means she has not obtained compassion. God would not be compassionate on that kingdom of Israel. He would not be merciful to them. There would be no more second chances and third chances and fourth chances, but there was a time for judgment and that time had come. And so the second child is Lo-Rahama. In verse 9, the third child is Lo-Ami, which means not my people. God says to them, you are not my people and you are not my God and I am not your God. There comes a time when God's people cease to be his people because of their behavior. That's something apparent both here and also in, uh, you remember the book of Revelation that's barely touched, at least by us, uh, by me. You go over there and you look at Revelation and you see that God promises to those churches that He would take away their lampstand if they refused to repent because they would no longer be His people because their behavior was no longer the way it ought to be. When we refuse to behave the way we ought to, God says, Lo, Ami, you are no longer My people. I am no longer your God. You're serving another. And that's what Israel was doing. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we have the relationship of Gomer and Hosea put on display. She is unfaithful to Hosea, just as God said that she would be. She behaves shamefully. She seeks lovers rather than her husband. And Hosea is to take a twofold approach. Number one, in verses 3 and 4, he is to... He is to instruct the children. Verse 2, He instructs the children 
to speak to their mother and call her back. You notice that? He says, contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. In verse 3 and 4, He's asking them to contend with her, to call out to her, to save her from the consequences that would come if she didn't return. And then if she should choose not to return, if she should choose to continue to play the harlot, Look at verse 5. He says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. She who can, uh, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She's attributing the blessings that came from Hosea, her husband, to all of her lovers. And so there Hosea is instructed to take a second second avenue to bring her back. And that is to remove the physical blessings which made her so beautiful and appealing and to make it difficult for her to reach her lovers. You notice in verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. The paths she was traveling in were the paths of harlotry. That's like building a wall in front of the doors of her lovers so she can't get in anymore. And then it says... She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Do you see the prodigal son in Gomer? She has gone out to her lovers, gone out to live the way she desires. And once she gets out there, all the blessings are removed and all the protection is removed. Life becomes more difficult. And then she says, oh yeah, my husband is the one I ought to return to. It's better with him than out here. And so she would return. Look at Hosea 3. Hosea chapter 3. As we've reached this point in in Hosea's relationship with Gomer, we need to realize he's got every lawful right to divorce her, to even stone her as an adulteress on multiple occasions, yet he's not done so. And in Hosea 3 verse 1, God has a command for Hosea upon Gomer's return. The Lord said to me, Go, Show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I, brought, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a half of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. The condition of her return and of Hosea's acceptance of her is the reinstatement of faithfulness. The reinstatement of their marriage covenant to which they both agreed. And when she agrees to that, and notice there's no malice 
on Hosea's end. There's no revenge sought. There's no, nothing going on in his mind that says, oh, I'm going to get you for this later, but right now let's, let's instate the covenant. No, he just says, I will behave the same way. I'll be faithful to you if you'll be faithful to me. That's our part. And so the reinstatement of the covenant is the only condition. And God applies this directly to His relationship with the Israelites. I want you to cast your mind back. Cast your mind back all the way to the land of Egypt. Remember, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And God sends Moses to bring them out. And he and Aaron confront Pharaoh. And all the great wonders are performed. And the people come out and wander in the wilderness. Really, they're not just wandering, but they're led by God into the wilderness where He then makes His covenant with them on Mount Sinai. And then He leads them all the way over into the land of Canaan. That promised land where they were eventually blessed with more than they could ever imagine. Listen to what Joshua 24 verse 14 says. Joshua addresses the people. And he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. That statement is very important. It tells us that before they crossed the Jordan River to come into Canaan land, you know what they were serving? Idols. And before God brought them out of Egypt, while they were in Egypt, do you know what they were doing? They were serving idols. And Joshua recognizes that truth in their history. And he says, your fathers served idols in Egypt. Your fathers, even when God brought them out, and was guiding them by miracles through the wilderness. Sustaining them. Even then they served idols. And you need to put those away. You've entered the land of Canaan. God has made good on His promise. He's brought you where He said He would. And blessed you beyond your wildest dreams. And now, put that stuff away. Put away what your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. Israel is Gomer. Hosea was commanded in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2 to take a wife of harlotry and that she would bear him children of harlotry. And the idea is she would never be faithful to him. That is an exact symbol and exact illustration running parallel to what the Israelites were doing to God. Before He chose them, they were idolatrous, spiritually adulterers. And after He chose them, they continued in their idolatrous practices. Even when He brought them into the land of Canaan, they continued in it. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 7-10, through 10, even within two generations of entering the land of Canaan, they began serving idols once again. And so they never, there was a very short period of time where they were faithful, but then they returned to the idols that they had served before. 
And so Hosea chapter 2 and verse 8 becomes a transition between God's look at Gomer and God's look at the Israelites. Remember, Gomer had said that all her lovers were providing her with all these blessings and oh, how good they treated her until she couldn't get to their house, until it was more difficult and until Hosea stopped supporting her that way. Then in verse 8 it says, For she does not know that it was I. And the I there is both Hosea and God. Hosea for Gomer, God for the Israelites. She, she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You see, the Israelites are Gomer, not faithful to begin with, continuing in unfaithfulness during their many years with God as their husband. In Hosea 2, verses 9 through 13, God says He's going to take away all the blessings that He gave them. Notice there He begins in verse 9, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. The idea is all those blessings that He was giving that Israel had forgotten where they came from, He's taking them back so that you remember it's a wake-up call for the people they need to remember. And in verses 14 through 23, if you're looking for the section of this where God is the God of compassion, even in the Old Testament, this is it. In verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. And then I will give her her vineyards from there. In the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And he says it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband and will no longer call me my master. And so there was a day when he would renew the covenant with them. When they would return and be welcomed by God. Even though they'd been so unfaithful to him. There's the God of compassion and mercy that you're looking for. We see God's love and His relationship with the Israelites. But there's some other things we need to touch on before we're done tonight. Because if that's all we do here, if all we understand is that direct application, we've missed some good things. There is an example of the love of a godly marriage in Hosea chapters 1 through 3. You know, oftentimes we, when we talk about marriage, we hit one of two passages, Ephesians 5 around verse 21, which shows us that picture of a godly marriage where the husband is the exact replica of Christ leading the wife in everything that's good, and the wife the exact replica of the church where she is following him because there's no reason not to. Because He's only loving her and doing what's best for her. And we say, oh, that's wonderful, but that's not quite my marriage yet. My marriage hasn't reached that point. How about yours? As a leader of the house, I still make mistakes. Still find myself leading in ways that are self-seeking rather than, rather than good God-seeking. 
And so we look at that and we say, well, that's what I ought to be, but it's not exactly what I am. It's a good goal. That's one of the places we tend to look. The other is Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 where we've got the discussion on divorce and we say, well, if things are going really badly and this happens, then go ahead and you can divorce your mate and marry another. And I think that's touched on far too often. That becomes the answer for far too many problems. We see in our world the, the destruction of marriage going on. And I'm not talking so much about, about homosexual marriage or anything like that. I'm talking about marriage as God designed it is dying. Because no longer is the covenant upheld. Because when folks get married, a lot of times they don't have the long term in mind. They have the, the magic of the moment in mind. And they like the magic of the moment. They enjoy what they feel in the moment. And all of the butterflies and the lovey-dovey and the warm feelings and thoughts. And then when all those go away, they say, but minister, the magic is gone and what do I do now? Can't I just get rid of them because I've got this other person who I really like? And oftentimes, folks will go ahead and do that. There is an answer in the Scriptures for a marriage on the rocks. There is an answer in the Scriptures for the marriage that has unfaithfulness in it, that has a mate who has been going out and seeking lovers, and, and, and what do I do if I'm the faithful one? Where should I be? What does God say I ought to do? And I'll tell you this, he doesn't say you ought to divorce him. He doesn't say you ought to divorce him. You look here in Hosea, chapters 1 through 3. Go and marry a wife of harlotry, she's going to bear sons of harlotry. That's the way my people have been to me. And then God receives them back when they come back. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what I see here. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, there's the call to return. That ought to be offered to every mate. There should never be a time where a mate's first communication with their spouse is divorce papers. The first communication must be, if it's a godly marriage, it must be a call to return. Come back. Come back because I love you. Come back and honor the covenant. If that's refused, then God commanded Hosea. And furthermore, in God's own marriage with His people, He exercised this step. The removal of those blessings that He was giving. He removed the easy path to her lovers. You know how God did that? You know, Hosea talks about uh, in verse 6 that He would hedge up the way and build a wall against her. He would make it difficult. Well, God sent them into captivity. You know what that might look like? That might look like moving across the country to get away from those paths that are so often walked that lead to a place of adultery. 
It might look like moving out of the country to get so far away that it's so difficult to get back. You've put up walls upon walls so that those people are never again able to enter your life. And why do you do that? Because you're trying to help. You're trying to save the marriage. Not end it. Build walls to keep them from those places of adultery and unfaithfulness. And at this point, some will never choose to return. Even when you build the walls, even when you make things you know, difficult to leave and easier to stay. Even at that point, some choose to continue seeking other lovers and continuing to dishonor the covenant and break the covenant And at that point, even God divorced his wife. And I think we need to realize that. At that point, even God divorced his wife for her adulterous ways. And he married another. He gained a new people, the church. But some... Some will return, hoping to be reunited with their mate. There will be that removal of blessings, the walls put up, it's easier to stay than to go, and divorce has not happened yet, and so we're trying to save the marriage, and some will wake up and say what Gomer said in the end of verse 7, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Some will wake up. Have that revelation and return. And the response of the faithful mate ought to be the reinstatement of the covenant and the return of all the blessings found within it. And there's something particularly touching in Hosea 2 verses 16 and 17. We read it a moment ago. This is when God is going to receive His people back and that becomes an illustration for our marriages. When you receive them back, he says, it will come about in that day that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And don't miss verse 17. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. When your mate has gone and run around with other lovers for who knows how long and they return to you and you reinstate the covenant with them and you're walking faithfully with them, taking care of them as you ought. The names of their lovers should be forgotten. Don't bring those up. In a moment of any kind of emotion, Don't bring up the names of the lovers. God says, I would cause the names to no longer be on their lips. They would no longer be mentioned, no longer be brought up. And instead, the focus would be our marriage. The faithfulness that we have now. The unity that we have now. And again, that that grand picture in chapter 3, the reinstating of the covenant without any malice, 
without any revenge, without any sort of selfish desire whatsoever, but rather forgiveness is found, taking that one back and reinstating the marriage and living faithfully in it. One last application. We see God's love for the world through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. We see God's love. I noted it several times as we've spoken tonight. You see His compassion. You see His caring. You see His love for His people. And not just people, but we see in His Son, Jesus, His love for the world. His compassion on the world. He's provided a way for every unfaithfulness to be forgiven, not only for the Israelites, but for every person from every nation who seeks a blessed covenant relationship with Him. In Acts 10, verse 34, Peter, opening his mouth, said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. God's love is given to every person. His love is given to every person. And I want you to think about you now. You've made a covenant with God. He is blessing you. Where do you say the blessings come from? You see, there was a problem with Gomer and with the Israelites. They had claimed the blessings came from the Baals or from the lovers. Do you know where your blessings come from? And is your life reflecting that truth? Our marriage ought to imitate the love, the patience, the faithfulness, the forgiveness of God. Our love for the souls of this world should reflect the love of God. They should see Jesus' sacrifice in our treatment of them. The way we conduct ourselves when we gather to study, to worship, our treatment of each other ought to reflect the love, the faithfulness, the truth of God to every person here. It should be seen clearly. So the question is, is your life reflecting Christ? Is your life displaying the faithfulness it ought? And just as important, if it's not, God will take you back. That's a, a beautiful message. It's one that's not just told in Hosea, but it's told throughout the Scriptures. That when God's people turn away from Him, He will accept them back if they will come back. Hosea was given a very difficult task. But his life did something tremendous. 
His life was a living, visible message of God's character. Is your life a living, visible message of God's character? Romans 12 says that it ought to be a living and holy sacrifice. Same idea. Same God. None are perfect except Jesus. I understand that. We understand that. But we need to correct our shortcomings. We need to continue growing in Christ so that the day He returns is the day He receives a spotless and pure bride, the church. Tonight, if there are spots on you, if you've forgotten the source of your blessings, if you've forgotten to honor God, if your life has become a message of your own desires rather than a message of God's character. Tonight is the time to correct that. And the invitation is open for you. And if you need to obey the gospel tonight by repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus before us, and being baptized in His name for your forgiveness, then we're here to receive you as well. But we can only receive you and God can only reinstate His covenant with you if you let Him know. It may be that your repentance doesn't need to be something public. maybe something very private. Perhaps it's between you and your husband or wife. Perhaps it's between you and your children. Perhaps it's between you and a brother or sister in Christ. Come back to God by making that right. Don't leave with all those things still staining you. Make it right. Make it right. And God will receive you once again. And you will be forgiven. And the names of those sins will not be spoken. If you have a need tonight, please come forward and make it known as we stand and sing. Thank uh-huh.